The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for all the promises in your word, many of which we just sang about. Thank you for your word that is this extensive message from you to us to remind us of who you are, who we are, and how that all works together. So Lord, we pray now, again, as we pray every Sunday, that you would come. You come by your word, you come in your spirit, and you would exhort us, you would encourage us, you'd comfort us, you'd convict us, that your Holy Spirit would do whatever work is needed in this room. You know every heart in this room. You know every person that's discouraged and downcast. You know every person that's encouraged and exuberant. Lord, you know all things. And you've given us this word and you've given us the Holy Spirit to do more than we could ask or even think as we prepare during the week or even as we drive here to worship. Lord, you can do more by your Spirit. So help us trust that, Lord, and work for the sake of your name and the good of your people, we pray. Amen. Happy Father's Day. It is good to be with you on Father's Day. We all know Father's Day isn't quite like Mother's Day, but it is good to honor the fathers here on Father's Day. I do pray that you'd be encouraged, that you'd be encouraged to walk faithfully with Jesus, and that you would, in all these messy situations that it means to be a father, in all the messy situations maybe you have in your past with your father, that you would be encouraged that you have a father in heaven who loves you (laughs) and who is for you and not against you, and that that would be your deepest identity over all things. I hope that's that's the case, and I know there's some of you here who are probably struggling today, so I just wanted to say that. Let's dive in here. Uh, One of the really unique things about Genesis 17 as you read a, a chapter and you begin to see themes, you, you begin to notice these unique features. And in Genesis 17, one of the unique features is the way we see God naming or renaming people. He's naming and he's renaming people, and you begin to go, what is, what is that all about? So you can ask the question, what's in a name, right? Shakespeare would say, nothing, right? A rose by any other name is just a rose, and I'm going to say the exact op- opposite. I'm going to say, your name matters. Names matter. Uh, there's this intrinsicness to our, our name that matters. So let me give you an example. Right, A name becomes a day-by-day, year-by-year reminder of a bunch of events and memories and priorities and realities, some joyful, some hard, but most of all, just the reminder that's built into a person and places and things. So here, here's my example for you. If someone says to me the name Kelly, Right? That, that really matters to me. That name has value, right? I remember the first time I saw her, right? I remember our wedding day. I remember our kids. I remember the places we lived, right? And all those little moments flood back with meaning. That name matters. If you say the name Iris or Stone or Apollos or Quinn, right? All sorts of moments come back, walks together, parks together, Zoo visits, life lessons, times I've had to apologize, late night Warriors basketball championships, right? Driveway basketball games, 
tickle fights, dance parties, dance recitals, dress-up games, devotionals, all these other things come flooding back with memories. Names matter, right? They, they mark us and they bring meaning to life. And it was exponentially so in the ancient world. A name was supposed to be an extension of your very identity. Remember last week at the beginning of this chapter when God shows up and says, I am God Almighty, He's telling them His name. Not just, I do almighty things. This is who I am. (laughs) You can trust me. I am almighty. I'm able to control all things and keep my promises to you. So as we look at chapter 17 again this week, the second half, and see God Almighty show up and remind them of His covenant promises, we also see Him change the name of those involved to be reminders filled with meaning and actually giving them their identity. Giving it to them, saying, this is who you are. So that as they're repeated throughout the generations, it would mark the people of God with fresh hope and joy to believe in and obey their king. So that when the people of God hear, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those names have meaning that are meant to point the people of God to believe in and to hope in their king. All right, point number one. Let's look at these names of the covenant. Really quickly remember with me that the first name we saw in this chapter really is the most important name. And it was last week God saying his name to Abram, saying, I am God Almighty. Remember, I said this was in response to 13 years of silence after his incident with Hagar, right? He had messed it all up. He had tried to do it on his own. He had tried to fix things. He had tried to bring about God's promises in his own strength. And he had messed it up. Hadn't talked about that a few weeks ago. It was a complete mess. And God shows up, not with a scolding at the beginning of chapter 17, But he shows up and he says, I am God Almighty. Yes, Abram, you're a hundred. Yes, Sarah is ninety. And God is reminding them by revealing one of his names that nothing is too hard for him because he's all-powerful. Because he will be their God and be with them to keep his promises to them. That's the first name that's over this whole chapter. I am God Almighty. All these other names and the meaning that God gives to them wouldn't even be possible or relevant or make any sense if God wasn't God Almighty. So he starts there. Second name. Look at verses 4 to 6. It says, Behold, this is God talking, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So the name Abram was a good name. Right on Father's Day, what Abram means is exalted father. But Abraham means multitude, father of a, a multitude, father of a multitude of nations. Remember, the promise that God would bless all nations through Abram's offspring. That's been the promise throughout this whole book since chapter 12. Well, here is the name that represents that. He says, I've made my promise to you. You've walked with me. Yes, it's been meandering, sometimes high, sometimes low. I'm going to give you a name that cements my promise to you. 
And notice that not only will nations come from Abraham, but kings will come. So here's the promise represented in his name. He's going to carry around God's promise in his very name for the rest of his life. And the promise now has expanded into a royal status. Now kids, here's what I want you to think about because here's what I think the point of naming someone this way is. Think about kids how many times a day your parents say your name. They say your name a lot. Right? They say your name when they want you to come. They say your name when it's time for dinner. They say your name when they're talking to you. They say their name when you're playing with you. Right? They say your name all the time, a bunch of times. You hear your name over and over and over again. Well now, every time they would say Abraham's name, it would be a reminder of all the promises of God. Every time this name comes out, where'd you get that name? <laughs> where'd you get the name Abraham? Well, God gave it to me. Well, why? Because I'm going to be the father of a multitude of nations. That's audacious. My God's almighty, right? That, how would that conversation go time after time after time? It would be a reminder that God was going to bring his people to his place to enjoy his presence now and forever. God is saying to Abraham, this is how certain my promise is. I'm going to change your name so that you carry it around with you for the rest of your life. God is defining his identity in a world that wants you to look everywhere for your identity. Here we see God says, I define your identity. I tell you who you are. I tell you your place in the story. I tell you what my promises are. And I will bring it about. What's the next name we see? Look at verses 15 to 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from, here, from her. So here God changes Abraham's wife's name to Sarah, which means pretty simply princess. She's royalty. That's what God's saying. And then we see the same promises related to her. Nations shall come from her through a son. She will have, and kings shall come from her. And remember, she's 90 years old. This is a big promise of royal offspring, nations and kings coming from her. So she's a princess because she'll be birthing royalty. So now every time her name is said, it will ring a royal tone of the promises of God. He defines her identity. So here God is again reminding them of his promises and the very names they will use day after day and moment after moment. Right? Every time they are yelling across the field to each other, every time they're talking over Isaac as Isaac is incessantly asking questions, Right? Every time they're, they're talking about their days together and what happened at night, every time they're referring to one another to other people, the idea of a father, to, father of multitude married to his princess and producing royal offspring is in the air. It's <laughs> just coloring every moment of their life at this point. God Almighty shows up and reminds them of his promises, reminds them he'll be with them, and renames them, gives them a new identity in step with his purposes. So how does Abraham 
respond as God shows up and, and renames them? How would, how would we respond? Look at verses 17 to 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Right? Falling on face, good. Laughing at God, not quite as good. Right? And we're, this is who we are, right? Abraham is humbling himself before God and yet laughing to himself all at once. Now, if you went and read commentaries about this, in Romans four sixteen to 25, it makes it clear and it references this episode that Abraham really believes in God. So people just go back and forth like, in this moment is he believing? Is he not believing? How do we, how do we take his laughter versus Sarah's laughter in chapter 18? Well, I think it's pretty clear he's not trusting right now. But I think, and I think it's going to be clear in like three verses now he is trusting. And I think that's what Romans 4 is talking about. But here, why is it clear that I think he's not trusting in this moment? Because, right, he's, he's laughing to himself about what? The chance of a child at their age. And then how does he ask God to fulfill that promise? He's not just laughing at it, but he's saying, God, would you do that through Ishmael? Right, could Ishmael count as Sarah's son? I don't know if you've seen Sarah lately, appreciate the new name, the updated identity, but she's still really old, and I'm still really old. So could you fulfill this promise through Ishmael? But like we've said all along, even when the faith is real, it wavers, it goes up and down. And right, near, right now, based on him laughing to himself and doubting the chance, I think it's pretty clear that he's having a hard time believing this promise, at least the way God's saying it, right? He's offering God other reasonable solutions, right? Well, what about this way or what about that way? Certainly you could just make it happen this way. We already have a son. Look, you can keep your promise. It's going to be okay. And if you've ever experienced when you say something and then someone kind of laughs and mumbles under their breath and then says, yeah, okay, whatever you say, you know what Abraham's doing right now, right? So, so how does God respond to this? How does God respond to this moment of Abraham going, uh, how about Ishmael? Well, in verse 20, God is, God is so kind. I hope you're seeing it through Genesis. Because, right, God could go, come on, man. Right, I've rescued you from famines and kings. I've helped you win battles. How many times have I showed up for you? But here's what God does. In verse 20, he reminds Abraham that he will indeed bless Ishmael. He says, I, I remember that promise. I'm the God who hears. That's what you named him after. He says, I'll bless him. I'll make him fruitful. And he will father 12 princes and be a great nation. God Almighty has heard the cry of Hagar and will keep his promise to her. And God is kind to say, I'm going to be kind to Ishmael. I am. Don't worry about him. But that's not what I'm talking about. The main way God responds to Abraham's laughter and moment of doubt is with another name. Look at verse 19. No, but Sarah, princess, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. The royal offspring that will crush the serpent, that one that I promised, that's coming through the line of Isaac. 
that ultimate promise of God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence under the perfect reign of that offspring that's a king, that's coming through Isaac. So what does is, what is Isaac mean? You guys know what Isaac means, right? You've heard it in sermons before. It means laughter. <laughs> he laughs. In other words, God is saying to them, I understand your struggle to believe now, but trust me, I'm going to have the last laugh. <laughs> I'm going to have the last laugh. You're going you're to laugh when you look at back at this. I'm going to keep my promises and the laughter of doubt now, I'm going to turn into laughter of joy. <laughs> the laughter of confusion and frustration and doubt and unbelief now, I'm going to fulfill and you're going to laugh with joy because I'm going to keep my promise that I made to you at the very beginning. You'll be reminded every time you say his name that you serve the God who laughs as the nations rage. Right? Your God laughs at what is hard. He's not confounded by what is hard. You'll be reminded that even as you laughed at the idea of an offspring coming at such an impossible age, you serve the Almighty God who is able to keep His promises and bring you everlasting joy and laughter in His kingdom. So here's the question for us. Is there an area of your life right now where you're doing this? Where you're doing this? Remember, we believe right now we believe that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. He has a, a regenerate, circumcised heart at this point. He believes, right? But his, his faith goes up and down. It's, it's better and it's worse. So is there an area of your life right now where you're doing this? Is there an area of your life where you've been waiting a decade for answers? Right? This is 13 years after the incident with Hagar. This is 24 years after his initial calling. That's a long time. Is there an area of your life where you, you hear God's promises, but you're kind of so beat down by life, or it seems so impossible, or you've sinned so much, or you're in such a tough spot, or you're looking around the world and seeing tragedy, and you're just kind of conflicted in your faith? You believe, but in your heart, your disposition is not, I believe, I'm, I'm all in. Your disposition is, <laughs> Okay, God, whatever you say, I'm not seeing it right now. Talking under your breath. And God would say in this moment to you, I will have the last laugh over sin. He will. <laughs> he will. He's going to make all things new. And we can't see it now. We walk by faith, not by sight. We can't see it now, but He's going to have the last laugh over sin. Your sin the sin out there, the sin in this church, the sin in your heart, the sin that you've committed, the sin being committed against you, he's going to have the last laugh over that. He's going to have the last laugh over suffering. Many suffering in this body. He wins. <laughs> suffering doesn't make it. He's going to wipe away every tear and every sorrow. He's going to take away all the pain. He's going to conquer death. He will have the last laugh over even death, the last enemy. Death doesn't survive in the new heavens and new earth. Death is dead. I will have the last laugh as I keep my promises by my power to bring my people to my place to enjoy my presence forever. Saying, I win. Always win, right? All God does is win. Right? God built his promises right into the names of his people as a gracious and constant reminder that he is God Almighty and he will never fail. These names, I want you to see them as gracious new identities. 
You're just going to say my promises out loud time and time again for the rest of your life. And so will people forever. Point number two, obedience of the covenant. So after this episode with this renaming and this interaction with Abraham and God, God leaves Abraham. And after this moment of doubt, we get to see Abraham Believe. We get to see his faith restored. So how do we see it? How do we see his faith restored? Well, we see it in his obedience. Right? His obedience in verses 22 to 27, it doesn't earn him any righteousness. He's already got that, right? Chapter 15 is when that happened. And Romans 4 makes a big deal about how God granted him righteousness before circumcision so that he would be the father of those saved, Right? By faith, not by those saved by works. So his obedience doesn't earn his righteousness, but the response to covenant promises from the heart of faith is obedience. So in verses 22 to 27, after God is done talking, Abraham takes every male living with them as a part of their household and circumcises them according to God's word. This feels to me like in this moment... Like, like Noah's saying to his family, like, we're going to build an ark. And they're like, why? It never rains here. It's like, God said to build an ark. This, the heart of faith responding to the word of God. Abraham goes to all the males in his house and says, guys, we've got to do something. And his family says, why? Says, God's marking us with his promises for everlasting reminders of who he is. This is the heart of faith. Listen to Romans six seventeen to 18. Listen to what it says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. What a beautiful phrase. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That's what's happening in Abraham's heart. This is an obedience from a heart of faith. This is an obedience from a heart that has been truly circumcised, like we saw last week. This is a heart set free from sin and beginning to live out the righteousness that has already been granted by faith. This is a heart set free to live in its new identity. This is Abraham saying, I'm Abraham. I'm encountered righteous by faith. God says that's who I am. He wants me to mark his promises by my name and by this ritual. I'm going to live into that. I'm going to trust that identity. I'm going to believe what God says about me. This is the heart that begins to restore more and more of the image of God in us. This is the heart Right? This, is, this is what a new heart does, a circumcised heart does, a heart transplant does. It just helps us see reality. It helps us see reality. He's just seeing that God is true and he's trustworthy as the true righteous king of peace and he's going to follow him. Abraham is not saved by this obedience. It's so clear. This obedience flows from a heart of faith that has set him free to look away from himself and instead believe in and obey the words of his king. This is the real life, moment by moment obedience that trusts that God is for us and not against us and therefore knows it's always best to do what he says. It's always best to do what he says, even when it doesn't make any sense. 
Like there are some times when if we do what God says, it makes zero sense to us. <laughs> right? Have you ever been in that spot? Like, I, I do this. And I've been in multiple situations where I go, man, there is option A, there's option B, and both of those are horrible if I do what God says. And then you do it, and God does C. Right? Or you do it, and B happens, and he meets you. And he, he comes to you, and he reminds you of his presence. Real faith will lead to real obedience. Real faith, we've seen over and over again, won't be perfect faith. Real faith won't lead to perfect obedience. But after seasons of doubt and seasons of disobedience, real faith remains because it's been granted to us by God. And that heart of faith leads to real repentance and real obedience that trusts God more than it trusts its own wisdom. Even in situations that seem way too hard for way too long. Think 13 years or 24 years in the case of Abraham. Even in situations that seem like our way might work better than God's way. Maybe there's an area of your life you know you're disobeying because you're just having a hard time trusting. Anyone have a hard time trusting God sometimes in this room? So would you even now, I don't, I don't want these moments to pass us by, like we're not, we're not playing right now, right? this isn't a game. So I just want to give you a minute right now <laughs> to in your heart, bow your heads, just going to take a one-minute prayer break if that's okay in a sermon, and would you just lay those things down? Would you just confess to the Lord, where am I not trusting you? Where is disobedience rising up because faith has gone down? And would you bring those things and lay them at the foot of Jesus right now? Just take a minute and do that right now. So Jesus, please help us in these areas. We pray it in your name. Amen. So we've seen the promise of an offspring to bless the nations. We've seen that offspring is Jesus by tracing that theme throughout the Bible kind of week after week. You probably all know how to do it by now, right? Psalms, Galatians, over and over again, you can make that theme happen. We keep talking about God's people and God's place to enjoy God's presence. And in this text... We've had this new idea of a king introduced. And so we should ask, this king idea, does does that run its way through the Bible? My answer would be yes. And I want to remind you that I keep saying that in these prophecies, there's often near fulfillment and far fulfillment. In other words, it gets fulfilled in the near future, but then God has something even bigger planned for fulfillment in the far future. So we could look, right, for the near fulfillment, we could look at the Bible and say, hey, There's two books called the book of kings (laughs) in the Bible, right? God has kept his promises that kings come from Abraham and the nation of Israel and say, yes, God kept that promise. But what I want to look at is the the far fulfillment. How is God keeping this in the far future? So we're going to jump from Genesis 17 to Genesis 49. So turn to Genesis 49. I want you to see these with me. In Genesis 49, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 to see this theme of a, of a king from the offspring coming. Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. 
He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here, Jacob, son of Isaac, right, son of Abraham, you're following the offspring line here, is blessing his children. And it says here that from the line of Judah, in that line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, will come one with the strength of a lion, with a scepter and tribute and obedience will come his way as king. This is the promise of a king that will rule over all the peoples and receive all the praise. Well, does this get picked up anywhere? Does this theme get picked up anywhere? Well, it does. King David was born to Jesse, who is in the line of Judah. So we've gone Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David. Right? It's all this line of promise, this line of offspring. And here's what it says. You guys will know this text if you've ever been to kind of an Advent service at any church. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Here's what it says. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So one is coming that will sit on the throne of David, who's of the line of Judah, and he's going to bring about perfect justice and righteousness and peace. Isn't that good news? And this one will be born, notice this in your Bibles as you read it, this one will be born a son. Is that starting to make things ring in your ears? A son, like the promise of an offspring, right? This son His peace will never come to an end. So now we've gotten from Abraham to David and a promise of a coming son in the line of Judah that will be the promised offspring to reign as king to bring perfect peace. So with that in mind, that background, this theme running through, listen to Matthew 1.1, which is a genealogy. I'm just trying to continue to raise your love for genealogies. So Matthew 1.1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That's how the New Testament starts. It's like they want us to see something, right? Matthew picks up all these promises and puts them right into his genealogy and says, Jesus is the one. He's the offspring. And people that would read this would go, he's the king. He's the Messiah. They knew their Old Testament. They knew all these texts are going, it's him. He's the one. And Matthew puts it here to put it in real time, in real history, on the ground saying this is real. He's here. He's on the scene. The coming one has come. Which leads to the last application here. What do we do? This is a really simple application, but I think the call of this text is believe in and obey the king. From our hearts, believe in and obey the King. So, what do we do? We plead with God, plead with God to help us see His Son as the trustworthy King of Kings. What would that mean if we believe that? That Jesus is the trustworthy King of Kings, that He rules over everything and everyone all the time. Trust and believe that Jesus is the King 
who gives us a new identity as sons and daughters that cannot fail and will not fade. That you're a son and daughter of the King of Kings. Not just a king, that would be cool, but the King of Kings. Son and daughter, which means you, you're in the kingdom, right? You own the kingdom. You're going to reign with him forever. Trust from that new identity and orient our whole lives towards him and fall down before him with our time, our money, our energy, and our resources. Say, it's all yours. (laughs) You're the king. Where else could I give this to? Where else could I give my time or my energy or my, my resources? Where else could I give it? You're the king. You're the king of kings. All of creation is headed towards you. And plead, plead that that identity in him, that what he's accomplished in you and your, your new name, purchased by his blood, dead to sin with him, raised to new life with him, eternal life in his presence forever, plead with him that that would matter more to you than any other identity or circumstance. Man, that's a, that's a miracle. It's a day-by-day miracle to believe that. This matters more. Being a son or daughter of the king matters more than my job. It matters more than being a father or a mother. It matters more than my failures. It matters more than my shame. It matters more than my successes. (laughs) This defines me. This is not life in the clouds. We have to remember the story of Abraham is real. God's really talking to him, really renaming him, and really calling him to do hard things. This is not life in the clouds. This is the day-by-day, moment-by-moment, decade-by-decade, trusting the one who has been working to keep his promise to us us, throughout all history and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what the fight of faith is. The promised offspring has saved us from our sins. He brings us eternal life in him, and he takes the curse on our behalf. He takes it completely. This is the moment-by-moment heart of faith that sees Jesus, trusts him, obeys him because we believe he's good, he's almighty, he's for us, he's not against us. And I know, I just, I just know how hard this is. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> I struggle to believe sometimes. Right, when we just did that minute thing, I laid down about eight things. Like, man, I don't know if I'm trusting you in this, in this, in this, in this, right? So, so how do we do it? And where my heart goes every time I talk to this about a friend recently is that, that I bring all my stuff and all my self-sufficiency and all my other identities and I bring it and I just watch them collapse on themselves sometimes and I just go, where else can I go? Or you have the words of eternal life. I, I can't leave you. I believe you. You're the, you're the king. You're the Lord of lords. You deserve my all. And I, I see my weaknesses and I see my failures and I see all the brokenness, some from me, some I'm stepping into. And I just have to say, you've got to fix it. And the good news is he has and he will. He has and he will. Yet this is the desperate plea to trust him in suffering today. If you're suffering today, this, this is what you say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help, help me obey you. This is the desperate plea to trust him in our, our sadness and our brokenness. This is the desperate plea for our hearts to orient themselves around what is ultimately true and good, that the king was crucified for us, rose again to conquer death, and will bring us to himself forever. 
The promise that we can know who we are and know we are fully known and fully loved by God and then walk in obedience from that place of rest. Right? This is the reality of that old sweet hymn, Trust and Obey. Right? Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Why? Jesus is the one who will bless all the nations. It's going to happen. You can bank your life on it. He's the only one who will ultimately bring perfect peace to our madness, which means I don't got to be worked up about how to figure out autonomy by myself. I don't got to be worked up about the next election cycle. I don't got to be worked up about gas prices. I don't got to be worked up about the stock market going up and down. I don't got to be worked up about any of that because Jesus is the one who's going to fix all the madness. He's going to fix it. He's going to be with us, right? I'm almighty. I'll be with you. He said that last week. He's the only one who will come and make all things new. He's the only king in any religion who is crucified for the sins of his people, rises again and says, I did that to bring you to myself. There's no other religion like that. There's nothing else in the world like that. He's the only king who stoops down into our mess and says, I'm going to redeem you to enjoy my presence in my place forever. No other religion like that. And so because of all of that, you can know You are not your failures. You are not your successes. You are not your shame. You are not any of those other identities. You are not any of those other circumstances. You have a new name. You can trust him and obey. And all of creation is heading towards the day when his people gladly worship their redeeming, crucified, risen king in his presence when he makes all things new and has the last laugh. That day is coming. So here's how I want to end. I just want to end by reading to you Revelation chapter 5. I'm just going to read select verses out of chapter 5. And I just want you to hear all the echoes from Genesis 17 in this text. This is where all of creation is, is heading. Here's what it says. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Right? Why are they crying? Because they're going, Who's going to make the end of history come? Who's going to bring all this to pass? Who's, who's going to do it? Who's going to make all things new? Who's going to bring eternity to bear? And they can't find anyone. And then they find him. It says, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory in might forever and ever. So Jesus, we're going to come and eat and drink with you now here in a second. And Lord, I, I pray that as we do that, um, you would show us the places in our heart where we're not trusting you, the places in our heart where we're talking under our breath, the places in our heart where you just, other, other things seem more real. <laughs> Other identities seem more solid. Our successes and our failures feel more real than our identity in Jesus. 
Oh God, would you help us trust and obey right now? Help our hearts be oriented in what's true and what reality is so that when we come and eat and drink with you, Lord, that we would be declaring with all our hearts in a fresh way again today, you are worthy, you are Savior, you are King, and you keep your promises to your people. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.